It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. You're listening to Cork Today on Replay. Phone and text lines are currently closed. This is Cork Today. Cork Today with Patricia Messenger on C103. And a very good Tuesday morning to you as we welcome you along on the 8th of December 2020. Hoping we'll find each and every one of you in super form uh, today. For some, they feel the 8th of December should be the first official day for preparation for Christmas. Certainly on previous generations, it was always the 8th of December. But I think for the year that's in it, so many people have been trying to get into festive spirit and have been putting up decorations and putting up Christmas trees way earlier than they would on uh, any other uh, any other year. We've got John Paul and Sadie taking your calls today, 1850-333-103. Anything you want to share with us, we'd love to hear from you. You can also text or WhatsApp 0862-103-103. And many of the papers picking up on what's been described as tears of joy yesterday and long-awaited reunions as residents of nursing homes were allowed visitors once more as the restrictions were relaxed uh, yesterday. And according to Sage, Advocacy, the the charity which supports and advocates for vulnerable uh, adults. They say older people and healthcare patients that have have been inundated over the last four months with calls from families who are worried about the impact of being separated from their loved ones in uh, nursing homes because of the visitor restrictions and uh, Sarah Lennon who we've spoken with before from Sage Advocacy she said we know of many people across the country who've been desperately holding out until the day they can reunite with their loved ones in nursing homes and it'll come as a huge relief to them uh, that the latest guidelines should help to facilitate them from uh, today and there's various stories uh, in uh, the papers today of nursing homes opening up and people getting to visit their loved ones. I mean there was one story I read about it was from a resident in a nursing home in Adair and he, the man had his daughter was coming to visit him yesterday but but obviously all of the nursing homes they've scheduled times they can't have everybody turning up at the same time so his daughter was to come to see him at half six yesterday evening and literally all day the man kept saying what time is it now? What time is it now? What time is it now? And he's at, where he's in the nursing home in Adair. He can actually see his own house from the nursing home. And he was up yesterday morning, bless his heart, from 7am, literally with every nurse, our care assistants that pass saying, what time is it now? What time is it now? And he had to wait almost 12 hours for his reunion with his daughter at half past six. He was just so excited. And before COVID happened, 
he normally would have a family member come to visit him every single day because he lived so close to his family home and to his extended family. There was always somebody passing. There was always somebody calling in to see dad or granddad. And he went from that to suddenly not having any visitors. And then suddenly yesterday, a half hour visit with his daughter. Bless his heart. And many more stories like that reflected right across uh, the country and of course between now and uh, Christmas nursing homes doing their very very best to schedule as many visits from loved ones uh, to their to their loved ones who are inside in a nursing home and that's why it's so important and it's so great to see that older people in nursing homes are going to be the first to get the COVID-19 vaccines they will then be followed by frontline healthcare workers and then the wider over 70 population and these are the plans seemingly they're going to be signed off and discussed by the government today. Now we're still waiting on the EU to finally sign off on the Pfizer vaccine but we know that that's I'm slow to say weeks away but I'm equally slow to say days away. I mean certainly uh, the European Medicine Board are really taking their time before signing off on us but it will certainly be done in this month, sometime in December. So are we looking at early January before we finally get a rollout in this country? So it'll start with the nursing home residents, then it'll move to the frontline health workers, then it'll go to the over 70s out in the population and then the over 60s who are in long-term residential care, they're seen then as the next group most vulnerable to the virus. So they, they get, they'll get vaccinated in the first sequence of efforts to inoculate Ireland's population and it's the proposed vaccination allocation strategy, that's what it's been called, it's going to be brought to the Cabinet by the Health Minister Stephen Donnelly today and it will see healthcare workers who have direct contact with patients vaccinated. They'll be the next group. Then people in the over 70s age group will get the jab starting with those over 85 and then they'll move down in five-year bands. So it will then it'll go to the over 85s when they're done then it'll go to the over 80s and then it'll go to the over 75s then it'll eventually get down to the over 70s and hopefully they'll get enough vaccines in that they'll quickly get through the various different uh, categories and of course all of this comes as our Chief Medical Officer Tony Houlihan warning that a lockdown in the new year was more than likely he's already pointing to what he says is anecdotal reports that just days after reopening them, there were overcrowded restaurants and gastropubs. And he's, of course, now appealing to people that if you walk into a restaurant or a gastropub and you feel it's overcrowded, he's saying, walk away, walk away from any of those risky situations. The National Public Health Emergency Team has warned the virus case numbers could be, they're saying it at a conservative level between 300 and 600 by early in January. But Dr. Houlihan in a letter to the government last week indicated that more, the more probable scenario was three to 450 cases a day by New Year's Day and 800 to 1,200 by the second week of next uh, month. And it's one of the times where I'm so hoping that Dr. Tony Houlihan is wrong. I'll actually keep that, that page on file and keep a note of it. And next month, when we get to the second week of next month, I'll pull out that piece of paper and just see, was Tony Houlihan right or wrong? And yesterday, we had people saying, 
talking about house parties and saying that they are aware that house parties are going on and somebody had contacted us uh, to say that she was out at the weekend and they had booked a number of different places meeting up in a small group of friends and they'd had you know a meal somewhere and a few drinks and then they had booked to go somewhere else so that they could keep the night going and then by the end of the evening half past 11 when it was time to go home they had at least five different house parties that they'd been invited to along the way when they met you know when people somebody would see them in a restaurant hey you come to our house after us we're having a bit of a house party and they were just taken aback that so many house parties had been organised and then you know that led to people contacting us yesterday saying yeah well aware that there's house parties what's going on with the Gardaí why are the Gardaí not in fining these people weren't we told that fines would come in if you organised a party weren't we told fines would come in if you attended a house party well it seems there is uncertainty regarding the implementation of of what's now been seen as long awaited powers for Gardaí to issue fines for house parties Gardaí are expected to get an update in the coming days on the fines system for the house parties and for the non-wearing of face masks. Now according to the Irish Examiner today they understand that while powers to impose fines for failing to wear a mask on public transport are in certain retail premises are expected to start this week and that the situation though is less clear on the commencement of the house party fines. Under the laws people attending house parties in breach of COVID restrictions can be fined €150. If you're organising the house party or a party outside of a dwelling your fine can be up to €500. Now while Gardaí can go to the front door of a dwelling they do not have the power to enter and depend on the owner to identify themselves and if everybody stays stum and nobody wants to identify themselves as the owner they have no power to go in and try to work out exactly who is the owner of the house and separately anybody not wearing a face mask on public transport or inside certain premises they could be hit with a fine of uh, 80 euro but it's understood Gardaí are now looking for direction from the DPP or they will look for direction from the DPP before issuing a fixed charge notice. That's in relation to the house parties. Sources say this is because it's both a new offence and it's also a controversial offence which for the first time uh, is policing activity within a person's home and remember a person's home we all enjoy constitutional protection. Now suddenly thanks to this legislation the police can come into your house and that's what's making it so uh, controversial. And there's also additionally the concern over how Gardaí can and identify whether or not people in the house are actually complying with the regulation because regulations on who can be in your family home are set to change this month under the current situation in level 3 where members of an extended household can enter a household can enter into a family home that's changing on December the 18th at the moment you're not allowed to people in your home but from December the 18th members of two other households can come into your house and then of course it reverts back to the more restrictive regime after January the 6th kind of a bit of a mess isn't it really and the Gardaí appear to me like they are slightly scratching their heads on all of this but it also ties in with the fact that the Gardaí never wanted these laws to be brought in I think for the complication and for those reasons and because a person's family home there's a constitutional protection Gardaí never wanted to be standing on a doorstep trying to force their way in to find out who's organised this party who is the owner how many people are at the party should you be in this house at all can I find you no I can't find you yes I can find you and you and I think they just didn't want the headache of it so it's 
that's still rumbling along. So judging by that, because that was the question that came in yesterday, has anybody been fined for hosting uh, or attending a house party? The answer simply is no. 1850-333-103. John Paul and Sadie are taking your calls. You can text her WhatsApp 0862 103 103. Thank you to a listeners just uh, WhatsApp to say about a package to Australia. Remember we were trying to monitor how long some packages uh, were taking. Uh, just to let you know Patricia, I posted a package to Australia. It left Dublin on the 19th of November and it arrived in Australia yesterday which was Monday the 7th of uh, December and actually yesterday when we were having our chat with Angus Lafferty from on post yesterday was the last day for posting parcels and cards to Flarfel destinations like Australia and that would tie in if it took from the 19th to that's all it's over two weeks nearly three weeks uh, to arrive and obviously if you want to get it there in time for Christmas yesterday was the final day you might just squeeze it by getting it in today thank you for that it's taking longer than it normally would take uh, obviously with uh, the huge volumes of mail going through all of the different countries we were talking about the vaccine hypertension regarding the vaccine I'm just wondering how long does the vaccine provide immunity for okay we're all keeping a close eye on the Pfizer NTech vaccine because that's the one that's been administered uh, today in Northern Ireland and in the United Kingdom and it's the one that's expected that the European Union are going to sign off on as our first uh, vaccine and unfortunately it's one of those nobody knows uh, it, it has yet they still don't know uh, how long the vaccine will last uh, whether it's going to be a bit like the flu vaccine whether we're going to leave need it annually or whether the COVID whenever the world gets vaccinated and herd immunity will will COVID simply just disappear and then we won't need to get a vaccine again or is it going to be a bit like this going to mutate every year and we'll be toodling along a little bit like we do to get the flu vaccine people in the at-risk groups will be going along to get it every year but as of now they don't know they simply don't know because it's a new vaccine how long it is going to last and this texter also says about the lady who said that she was out at the weekend she was invited to, to five different house parties that got me thinking she must have been out with a very big group of people I thought we're meant to be limiting our contacts well you can go out with six five other people you can have six people at a table is what has been recommended but I think what she was saying because they went to a number of at least two maybe they went to three they had three different maybe they had three different bookings it was just people that they met along the way you know they might have seen in a restaurant who sort of waved over or hi you're out you know if you want to come out we're having a party later on in our house. I picked up from her message that that's what she was uh, actually talking about. And on the actual vaccine uh, itself, there's pictures now appearing on the internet of the first nurse. Uh, a nurse has become the first person on the island of Ireland to receive the Pfizer BioNTech COVID vaccine this morning. The first dose was administered at 8 o'clock at a mass vaccination centre at the Royal Victoria Hospital in Belfast and the first person to receive the vaccine on the island of Ireland uh, was a 28-year-old nurse from Dundrum in County Down. Her name is Joanna Sloan. She's a sister in charge of COVID vaccination for the Belfast Health and Social Care Trust. She's a former emergency department nurse and she has been a nurse for the past six years. She's engaged to be married. Lots of detail coming out about her. She's postponed her wedding due to the pandemic. She's a five-year-old daughter and of course we know that was at eight o'clock this morning but an hour earlier the first person to be vaccinated in the world was a 90-year-old grandmother by the name of Margaret Keenan. 
she received the vaccine in the UK. I'm assuming Margaret is a nursing home uh, patient, but she was the first in the world uh, to receive it. 90-year-old grandmother, Margaret uh, Keenan. 1850-333-103. And we wait to see how long it will be before we start vaccinating here. Text or WhatsApp 0862-103-103. Now, restaurants, news agents and cafe owners say they are struggling to get staff for the Christmas reopening amid fears of a third lockdown. To discuss how restaurants are getting on since the lifting of restrictions, I'm joined by Adrian Cummins of the Restaurant Association of Ireland. Good morning to you, Adrian. Good morning. You're, you're welcome to the programme. Are some workers afraid to sign off their pop payments? I mean, is that what this is about for some? So we have... Uh First of all, thank you for having me on the, on the show this morning. Um, obviously, uh, we're delighted that we're back open since last Friday. The government has given us the green light to do so, and we're, we're thankful for that. Um, we have two cohorts of, of, of employees here. So you have, you have certain businesses that can't reopen because their businesses are prohibited, and obviously those employees will stay on the pub payment, or they'll go and find work in other other sectors. And then you have the, the other cohort of employers whose businesses can reopen and are trying to attract staff back into those businesses. And what we're finding is not some, not all, but there are some employees that won't come back to work because they feel that they, can, they want to stay on the pub payment. And that's their own decision. Uh, but it's putting huge problems for us trying to fill those vacancies and operationally function uh, as an industry as time will December. So we need all hands on deck uh, to make sure that we do able to provide a regulated, safe environment for our customers and our diners. But we need staff in place uh, to do so. So we have an issue at the moment and we're hoping that these staff will actually move back into the workforce as quickly as possible. Yeah, and as somebody has uh, pointed out, this week is Double Social Welfare Payment Week with the Christmas bonus and people who get the PUP are entitled to that. So for some, it mightn't pay them to sign off this week. Yeah, we understand that as well. And that's, you know, uh, we take the, the rough of the smooth at the moment in our industry. We've been economically flattened right since March this year. And we've been in lockdown for six weeks, like many other sectors as well. So we understand about the double payment of the pop payment, trying to get people back to work. Uh, but we're hoping that those, once they've got their payment, that they do actually come back because there is jobs available for them. Um, and, you know, we want to be able to provide uh, an, an opportunity here for people to earn extra money if they so wish uh, for wages. Uh, so they'll have a Christmas to look forward to and a December to look forward for their families and their loved ones. And it is worth pointing out for people nervous about signing off and losing their pop payment that if, if God forbid, there was another lockdown in January, the PUP remains in place. That's been guaranteed until March, isn't it? Exactly. And we lobbied for that and we're thankful to the government that they actually uh, extended it until the end of March. So... There should be no uncertainty for employees that if there is another lockdown, and hopefully that there isn't, you know, we don't want that to happen. We we want to keep our doors uh, open because, 
You can imagine now a third lockdown for an industry, what that's going to do. It'll just wipe out so many businesses. Um, so we need to make sure that uh, we can sustain this into the future. You know, the vaccine is on the way. It's all over the media today, the vaccine rollout in the UK. We'll know on Friday the, the plan for Ireland. And I think everybody's going to start talking about when they're going to get the vaccine and when we get back to normality. I think that has to be the agenda now. The normal resumption of the economy right across the country so that we can move forward, and rebuild and recover because our industry, and like other other sectors, uh, we've had a quite a turbulent um, uh, eight, eight months uh, and we, at least there is light in the tunnel but we need to get to that finishing line as quickly as possible. And by the way, just on, on workers, has your industry lost workers to other sectors of employment when, you know, when the restaurants were closed? Did workers move to other yeah, different that, jobs? That's correct, yeah. We've, our, our estimate is that 20% of our workforce has gone to other sectors because of the uncertainty due to the lockdowns. And, you know, that I, if I was in that position, that's what I would do. Mm. I would try and find myself a job because you have bills to pay, mortgages to pay, families to pay. All of that has, had to be done. So we, our, our rough estimate is 20% is gone. That's high. And there's another 20% at home at the moment that we're trying to attract back. Okay. So we're down 40% of our workforce at the moment. And we need to start to rebuild our economy, rebuild our industry. And that's why we're looking for a hospitality task force to be established. So all those issues that are affecting your coffee shop owners, your caterers, your event caterers, your hotels, your restaurants, your pubs, your, everybody that's in hospitality, we need a task force established so that we can deal with the issues around rents, legacy debt, banks, revenue, um, all of those skills shortages, all of those issues that are now facing us in 2021. So, you know, there's a job of the hand to be done. We're up for that challenge, and we need the government to initiate a high-level task force to start to work out with us, to get us a roadmap, to get us out of this, these issues. How did the first weekend go, uh, Adrian, for your members? Um, positive. Uh, Good. In general, um, obviously, we had places where customers had pre-booked a number of outlets didn't turn up. Uh, we, we call them. In a That's very way. frustrating, isn't it, Adrian? To hear the no-shows. Uh, extremely frustrating for our industry. Uh, we're conscious that you know there was pent-up demand uh, for when you're six weeks locked down and people wanted to have a social outlet. Obviously, they want to get out. Not everybody is going to go. We understand that. You know, you're going to have a cohort of people that are going to be very cautious coming up to Christmas. Understand that totally. I mean, you know, people are going to, you know, if they're high risk, they're elderly, they're whatever, they're, they're going to make the decision not to go out. But you're going to have a certain cohort who will like to get out to meet their friends, their close circle of friends. And we're encouraging, keep your close circle of friends very tight. Adhere to public health guidance. You'll have a maximum of six people at a table. There'll be no awesome parties. There'll be no large gathering. You will have to be organised when you go to a restaurant. You'll have to pre-book. You'll have to wear your mask moving around the restaurant. You'll have to have food when you're going to an establishment if you want to have a drink. And you'll have your set time as well, which is 105 minutes. So we're we're adhering to the guidelines. We want every business to adhere to them. We're hope, we hope that the Gardaí will close down with immediate effect any premises, premises that doesn't uh, adhere to the guidelines. 
because they put the jeopardy in the, of an entire industry at stake. And we want the public to work with us on that. And we want to make sure that we're in this for the long haul uh, as such. And we want to get back to normality as, as, as soon as possible. OK, Gat, one of our listeners on uh, Twitter at C103 Cork said had uh, wonderful meals out on Friday and Sunday. Great safety precautions in both restaurants, tables, two metres apart. It felt like heaven not having to cook a meal and to sample a bit of normality. The no-shows, disgusting selfishness, says uh, Gat. Uh, thank, uh, thank you for that. And do you think the government, um, Adrian, finally made the right decision in insisting that the gastropubs had to actually have a kitchen and a physical chef on the premises? Well, um, that was, that decision was taken based on the government. The government made that decision themselves. Obviously, you had rooms with operators out there before. We all know those operators that had empty pizza boxes that had, um, you know, there were thousands below. And obviously, the government tightened up on, on that uh, and that you had to have a kitchen and you had to have the food prepped on site. So, you know, um, we believe that we, we we want to adhere to the government protocols and guidelines. That's a decision of government. Uh, I'm not going to go against that. Um, and obviously, we want to make sure that everybody, and I, I want to appeal to every business owner listening to this, do the right thing in the interest of the health of our country and your community. Because if you don't want to put the risk of your customers and the rest of our industry at stake if they don't do this properly. So, and we want to make sure that they are those businesses that don't do things right, they're closed down immediately. Uh, because they're ruining it for everybody else. They're ruining it for everybody else. And yeah. a lot, huge amount of goodwill has been given towards our industry to reopen by, by our political, by politicians. And we want to make sure we do the right thing. So, you know, this is, everybody needs to play their part now with this. Okay. All right. Listen, Adrian, thank you for that. Uh, Happy Christmas to you and thanks for joining us. Uh, Good morning to Adrian Cummins there, who is the uh, CEO of the Restaurant Association of Ireland. Court today on C103. Text or WhatsApp Patricia with your comment. 086 2103 It was actually this day last week that many people were very happy to see their local charity shops open and back up for business following the lifting of COVID restrictions. But we did receive a few calls from listeners wondering why the Gertha shop in Skibbereen was remaining closed and they were wondering would it ever reopen again? Well, to explain more, I'm joined by Maggie Dwyer who's the National Retail Manager at the Gertha Shops. Good morning to Maggie. Good morning, Patricia. How are you? I'm very well. Now, you would love to reopen, I'm told, but you have a problem with your volunteer workforce. Well, I wouldn't say it's a problem. They have been absolutely fantastic. We've been in Skibbereen for nearly 30 years now in different locations. Some of our volunteers have been with us that length of time. So it's not the volunteers. It is the COVID pandemic. You know, we don't want to be in a position where we're putting any volunteer of any age in direct line of contact with it. And that that is, I suppose, the most important thing that we have in mind. All of our other shops that we have in Mallow, in Cork City, in Bandon, we have paid staff there. Skibreen is our only shop that we have that has still maintained nearly 30 years on a completely volunteer basis. Wow. And it is amazing, you know what I mean? I wouldn't say we're close. We were going to make an attempt to open in October and the R number was down, everything was looking well and we are going to maybe open maybe Thursday to Saturday and, you know, volunteers were motivated. 
then the R number went up two weeks later and we're back in lockdown again. So, you know, we were making efforts and, um, like, at the moment, it, it's uh, the um, our landlords there, the CYMS, the trustees have given us a nominal rent to pay every month. We're not paying any heating, we're not paying any electricity. Do you know what I mean? We have no um, no overheads. That's good, you know? that's good, so that's good. Moment, it's, it's, I'm just and so, and I'm also more. told, Maggie, that the size of the shop uh, could could be an issue because it's not a very large shop. No, it's very small. So as from government regulations with COVID-19, um, um, social distancing, the way our shop is, and so small, um, uh, due to the size, if we have, say, two volunteers on a hill, which we would need, um, we'd only be allowed then two customers in per shop um, at a time because they had the dis- social distance, obviously, with the two metres, which um, the problem then with that as well is that someone has to maintain the door either by like a barrier up telling people that the shop is full or, you know, they can come in and come out. So someone has to constantly maintain that. We would have the COVID screens up. We have to have the, the exactly the same as any other retail shop. The shop has to be disinfected on a regular basis throughout the day. Any donated stock come in has to be held aside for 24 hours untouched because it's classified as a, uh, because it's fabric, it's classified as a breathable source um, for contamination. So it has to be held, held aside for 24 hours. So that can't be touched. Then um, the stock room where you're sorting and pricing and steaming all the items, social distancing has to be done there. So a minimum, say on a Monday, um, um, Monday during the day, in the stock room, we could have had up to eight to ten volunteers. That would be down to minimum of maybe three, maximum four volunteers. You know, so it's, it's once not across possible, the board. Yeah, it yeah. isn't. So if we did reopen and we had that system, I mean, our, min, our, our, our average price of an item in a charity shop was five or six euro. You could have two customers in wandering around for 20 minutes and one of them might buy something for five euro. And meanwhile, you're paying rent, you're paying overhead, you're paying electricity, you're paying heating and you're not making money out of it. You have to balance it all up. How are your other shops doing, Maggie? They're doing fantastic as well. I must admit, I mean, the people, especially in West Cork, where we have our shop abandoned and and Mallow McCroom and all that, they've been tremendous. Just loan with donations, coming in asking for help, um, financial donations, everything. I mean, we're running a campaign at the moment since before um, lockdown called the um, the One Million Trees campaign. And um, it's in partnership with Guinness Yogurt. So you buy a, a container of Guinness Yogurt and they donate one euro to every pot that's um, that they've eaten. So, I mean, I think we've all gained a few extra pounds during <laughs> the lockdown. <laughs> but there's been a huge, gra- in recent years, uh, maybe the last, I don't know, is it five years? Two, certainly two, three years. There's been a huge groundswell of support for charity shops. And oh, young, I, I younger mean, people are really waking up to what you can buy inside in charity shops, the bargains oh, you can get. So. I, I think as well, it's a kind of, I, not, I was always saying, charity shops were always seen in Ireland as an economical thing. People who were unemployed, who didn't have money, you bought for, as a necessity. Yeah. Now people are coming to charity shops to top up on their wardrobes. Yeah, buy the yeah. Handbag, yeah it's great. Yeah. You know, and there is that alternative. We're trying our best as well in charity shops to put the best, our best foot forward. Do you know, the best stock that we have to put out, anything that we don't sell, clothes-wise, shoes, handbags, we sell on to a recycling company called CTR in Northern Ireland. You know, so that's all recycled on top of that as well. So we're trying our best as well to be um, um, environmentally um, ahead of the game. Yeah, and you in know? normal times, they are great earners for all of the, of the charities. Oh, that's why it's important yeah. that people support them, that they are back up and running. But your message today, uh, Maggie, I'm hoping is that once we get a vaccine and we know they've started the vaccinations in Northern Ireland and, and in the UK, mm-hmm. uh, once a vaccine, a vaccine programme arrives in this country, you you do hope to reopen the shop when life yeah. returns to normal? 
Yeah, that's it. I mean, we're, as I said earlier, we were hoping to hope for October because the R number was coming down and we were looking and then here we are back in lockdown again. So the only, uh, the, the only I suppose, um, safe alternative at the moment is a vaccine. For all of us, it doesn't yeah, matter what yeah. age group you are. You're dead right. You're, you're dead right. Okay. Well, listen, we're glad to clarify that because you've got a lot of people who obviously love your little girl to shop in Skibbereen because we had so many calls last week. We said we had to find out what was going on. So, listen, thank you for the update uh, and have a happy Christmas, Maggie. And uh, kind regards to everybody in uh, Gertha. Thanks for joining us. And good morning to you. That is uh, Maggie Dwyer, National Retail Manager at the Gertha Stores. Court today. Court today. With Patricia Messenger on C103. C103. Just before 12, I played that wonderful song from uh, Dermot Kennedy. Mary says, Patricia, the song you played by Dermot Kennedy, uh, Giants. Uh, did you see the young lad on the Late Late Toy Show singing the same song? And then Dermot Kennedy surprised him by walking out in the middle of the song and started singing it with him. God, that young lad's voice was so like Dermot's. Had I only been listening to the lad on his own, you know, would not looking at him, I would have thought it was Dermot uh, singing. That young lad was brilliant. He'll be heard of in years to come. Happy Christmas to all at C103. Uh, Mary, thank you. Uh, says Mary, thank you for that, Mary. Yeah, absolutely agree. And actually, wasn't that one of the things that Dermot Kennedy said to him that his recording studios have agreed to let the lad in to record because he writes some of his own songs as well. We must try and track down a name for him. But yes, he definitely is on the list of one to uh, watch. Can I just clarify something? Because a couple of people are picking me up on this, including uh, Eamon in uh, Cove. Thank you for your text, Eamon. Say, Patricia, you said early, earlier that an elderly woman in the United Kingdom was the first person in the world to get the vaccine. And the person I mentioned was a 90-year-old grandmother by the name of Margaret uh, Keenan. Eamon and Cove says, this isn't true. The Russians were administering small amounts of their vaccine back in August and the Chinese have been giving their vaccine in China also. You're falling for British propaganda, says Eamon from Cove. And he's not the only one. A couple of other people pointed out saying this isn't the first woman in the world. Can I just point out, and I should have stated this when I was talking about this 90-year-old grandmother, Margaret Keenan. She is the first person in the world to get the Pfizer vaccine, obviously, out side of the trial. Yes, there has been other vaccines. Russia has a vaccine that the world doesn't recognise and it's the same with the vaccine in China. So this is the first vaccine that is being recognised worldwide and we know the United Kingdom were the first to approve it. So that's why Margaret Keenan has been billed as the first woman in the world to get the Pfizer vaccine outside of the trial and I should have possibly said that but yes, you're right. There has been other vaccines in other countries but it's just not uh, recognised by everybody. And actually let me, let's me let just hear from that 90 year old grandmother Margaret uh, Keenan. I just have a short little piece from her after she received the vaccine at 7 o'clock this morning. I would say go for it. Go for it because it's, it's free and it's the best thing that's ever happened uh, at the moment so do please go for it. If I can do it well so can you. Well, there's Margaret, very happy to say to be the first in the UK to receive the vaccine this morning. And just uh, thank you for your text, so in pointing that out uh, to me, 1850-333-103. And as we've mentioned, people in nursing homes, it is looking like we're going to 
the government will finally sign off on who, how the vaccine is going to be rolled out when we're ready to roll it out in this country. But it is looking like that the nursing homes, nursing home residents will be the first cohort to receive the uh, vaccine. And I was talking about people being allowed into nursing homes. Yesterday was the first day the visits, face-to-face visits are back up and running. And in Texas says, Patricia, I can't imagine why nursing homes are allowing contact visits just as the vaccine is about to be rolled out in this country. Would it not have been safer and more sensible to wait until all of the elderly and the vulnerable people have been vaccinated? All it will take is one COVID positive visitor to put so many of the people at at risk. And normally when anybody is saying anything to try to protect somebody and to stop at-risk groups, I'd be backing you 100%. But you know, on this one, I, I... I had this feeling yesterday of kind of a feeling of joy for people who have a loved one in a nursing home and feeling what the sense of excitement must have been like. And when you think about going to visit somebody in a nursing home, I mean, I know it's a contact visit and that they're allowed into a room together, but there's no hugging, there's no kissing. People will have masks on, temperatures will be taken. There's still a lot of precautions being taken around those contact uh, visits. And those elderly people in those nursing homes have just... Been, felt so isolated and missed so much seeing their family members that no and I know the vaccine is coming and it is only right and proper that we protect those people first so that they can have visits almost on a daily basis if they wanted to have visits so no I still think they were right in allowing and I know where your concern is coming from and you're right to have concerns but I still think I still think they, it, it's the right thing to do to allow those people have loved ones in to visit them and especially for the time of the year that we're at with Christmas just around the corner but thank you for your WhatsApp to 0862103103 Liz says Is it time yet Patricia for you to play Frank Kelly's The 12 Days of Christmas I'm never allowed to play that very often I know I know, I always include it on Christmas Eve when I get allowed to play as many of my own Christmas songs as I can for the day that's in it and I know John Paul says we're going to cut back on talk this year on Christmas Eve to allow us to play as many of the songs as we want to, particularly for the last hour we're going to try and do and let people get requests in because we don't normally do uh, requests. So I would have to sort of dig around and fr- find my Frank Kelly's 12 Days of Christmas because I know people love it. Yeah, I think for the year that's in it, we might try and give it an extra spin. I'll see what I can do Liz. Will you leave that with me please? Okay, a couple of queries in from listeners. Patricia, hi. When is the last day for posting Christmas cards to Canada? Okay, I took a quick look on on Post on their website where they give out all of the dates. Can't specifically find Canada. So I'm wondering, would Canada be lumped in with America? And if it is lumped in with the US of A, then the last day for posting Christmas cards to the US is the 11th of December, the 11th of December, which is this coming Friday. For the rest of the world, it was yesterday, the 7th. So to be sure, to be sure, if you have your card ready, I'd be popping to the post office today and get it under under underway. Yesterday was the final day for postcard for Christmas cards for the rest of the world outside of the US is the 11th the rest of Europe is the 17th of December if you're family in Great Britain you've got to have your your Christmas cards in the post by the 18th for Northern Ireland it's the 19th of November and for cards here in Ireland you need to have them in the post for the 21st of December and hi Trish says the listener could you ask your listeners does anybody know any store selling or having stock Bailey's Salted Caramel and Bailey's Red Velvet Oh, now I've, I didn't realise Bailey's did a red velvet version. It sounds 
absolutely delicious and decadent. I know I've had the salted caramel one. That is magnificent. It's actually too good. It has that taste of more from it that you'd open up a bottle and you drink it yourself. Didn't know there was a Bailey's Red Velvet. So we will put the call out, please, for one of our listeners. Has anybody been out in an off-licence or in a supermarket that sells alcohol? If anybody has spotted Bailey's Salted Caramel and Bailey's Red Velvet, can you let us know, please, where it is on sale at the moment? 1850-333-103. A listener wants to know, is anybody uh, having problems with the AIB app this morning? Anybody having problems with the AIB app? this morning. If you can let us know on that, please, for one of our listeners. Hi, says Pat. I see that some pubs are saying that they're going to close for St. Stephen's Day and the reason that they are giving is that they want to give staff a break. Pat says, my question is what were the staff doing for the last six weeks? Were they not on a break? Okay, well I tell you one of the reasons that I've read that the gastro pubs, and I don't know about the restaurants, and unfortunately Adrian Cummins at the Restaurant Association has gone offline uh, before I read that uh, comment. Many of the food serving pubs are the ones, some of them, have decided that they're not going to open on St Stephen's Day. And yes, Pat is right. There was media reports that it's to give the staff a break. And publicans were making the point that staff will be working longer hours to ensure that all of the venues can open under the Level 3 restrictions because Level 3 restrictions are bringing extra work uh, with it. And they've decided that obviously they'll be closed for Christmas Day. And in order to give them a bit of time off over Christmas, that they just won't open on St Stephen's Day. But there's also another bigger issue and it's to do with food delivery and the logistics around planning for St Stephen's Day. Suppliers won't get a delivery on the 26th of December and their last day for delivery or to go out and purchase will obviously be Christmas Eve. So if they're trying to factor in how much food to buy in for Christmas Eve and how much will be sold and then they're obviously trying to factor in how much they're going to need for St. Stephen's Day. And remember, we're in a very different situation to what we were in any other year. Any other year, a gastropub could open up and if they ran out of food, they ran out of food and they could just say to people, sorry, all the steaks are gone, all the chicken is gone, she can have a few drinks instead. They can't do that this year. The only way they can allow people into their premises is if they come in and have a substantial meal to the value of nine euro. So they would have to have enough food and it's hard to judge how are they going to work out how much food they're going to need and they certainly won't get delivery of food on the 26th. So it's a food delivery logistics issue as well. I don't know when people are saying what pubs are going to open and what gastropubs are not going to open, I don't know. I think that's obviously something people are going to have to check locally to find out if their own gastropub and restaurant is opening or not on St. Stephen's Day. Now restaurants will probably open because restaurants have been in the habit of always doing that. They always well those that open on St Stephen's Day obviously somehow get around the logistics uh, side of it but it's throwing up a few problems for some of the gastropubs uh, this year. 1850 103 Later on on the programme today. I'm going to be talking with Zara King of Virgin Media. Zara King has a programme that goes out tonight at nine o'clock and it's to do with COVID and living with COVID and she's speaking with families who've been affected by COVID-19 but she also has sat down and is speaking with one of the key players involved, you know the likes of Paul Reid from the HSC Simon Harris when he would have been in the role as the Health Minister and Dr Tony Toolan, Head of Neffert she sits down and talks with them as well so it'll be interesting to get their back 
the background to some of their decisions and how they felt when some of those decisions were being announced and made. So she'll chat with us about that programme, which I say is going to be on TV uh, tonight at nine o'clock. But last night was the second part of the Great Hunger programme, the programme about the famine. I don't know how many people sat down to watch it last night. Dorothy in East Cork was on to say, Patricia, I heard your comments last week about the famine programme. So I decided to watch it on the RTE player because I had missed it the previous Monday. But I did watch part two last night. It actually made me very angry watching the programme at what happened to Irish people. But one question really struck me after the programme and it's got Dorothy thinking. Has anybody ever calculated what the population of Ireland would be if the famine hadn't happened. And the reason Dorothy is thinking about it, because it's stated in the programme that the population at the time in the United Kingdom was 12 million people. But the population in Ireland at the time was eight and a half or 8.4 million people. Now the population in the United Kingdom, they were 12 million during those famine years and they weren't affected by the famine, obviously. But their population is now at 65 million people. So if you... If you go on that basis, would that mean that the population of Ireland would be somewhere around the 40, 45 million mark? If their 12 million went to 65, would our 8 million have gone to 40, 45 million uh, people? Would it have developed naturally as it had done in England if the famine hadn't occurred in this uh, country and that's got Margaret or Dorothy thinking what would have been the knock-on effect for this country what kind of an Ireland would be live would we be living in today if we actually had that many people living here and uh, she's wondering because people looked back on that and the impact of the population on the family well I think you know the impact we all know the impact it's had on the population and we've never come anywhere near I mean I know we're rising every time we do a census the numbers has gone up but we're still nowhere close to the over 8 million people that were that were on this island before the famine but so I throw it out that there's got to be some historians, statisticians who must have some stage sat down and worked out what the population would have been. But I'm wondering then, has anybody taken that a step further and actually done research as to what the country would have looked like to have that many people? Would it have been like it is a little bit across the water in England? Would it have been like huge cities where, you know, we would have millions of people living in cities and you still would have countryside with smaller villages? What would the shape of Ireland have looked like. But yeah, it's one certainly worth thinking about. Dorothy, thank you for that. I found last night's, no, I found the week before's as well. The week before I was, I was very cross watching it and, and, uh, uh, and very upset. I found last night's really depressing. I, I sort of went to bed with a very heavy heart after it. And I found when they were talking about things like cannibalism and they were saying that there wasn't a lot of it but there was evidence that it, those, that it did go on my God those poor people to be that hungry it's just and, and the way families murdering each other and, and parents killing children and you wonder infanticide you wonder did they do it to put their children out of their misery because watching their children starving to death just shocking Absolutely shocking, but it 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 does have an explanation, and I know we mentioned this last week. Why it's almost deep rooted in our DNA when we see famine, 
and when we see tragedies and catastrophes in other countries, why we the Irish are always known to be so generous of spirit and we're always the ones per head of population when there's any worldwide disaster we're always the first out there with fundraisers we're always the first to donate even at times when we don't have a lot and you know the obvious one was during Live Aid and Band Aid and all of that during the 80s when we had you know a recession in this country and per head of population on the day of Live Aid we gave the most money and I just think it's somewhere deep within us it's in, it's in our DNA it's rooted in us that our, what our forefathers went through but I certainly last night was I went to bed I think a bit depressed I went to bed very low last night after watching the programme was that only me or how did others feel 1850 John Paul and Sadie, you're taking your calls. You can text her WhatsApp 0862 103 103. C103 Jobs. Oh, Callahan Motors in Kentucky. They've got the following vacancies. They're looking for a third or a fourth year apprentice mechanic. They're looking for a car wash attendant slash trainee valeter. And they also have a position for a junior car sales executive. A cafe assistant with barista experience is required. That's for Dunmanway. Please note it's daytime hours only. And an experienced joiner is wanted. And the Corbett Court restaurants there in Ballyhay and in Kilworth. They have vacancies for night porter, waiting staff and kitchen assistants. You'll find all the details and more job opportunities by going online now. Just go to c103.ie forward slash jobs for more. This is C103. C103. Now, many weeks ago during a chat with Katrina Toomey of Cork Penny Dinners, I asked her about what were her plans for Christmas Day this year and she admitted that she was worried and didn't know how they were going to be able to serve dinner uh, to the needy of Cork this year. Well, I'm delighted to say she's got what's been described as a miracle on Little Hanover Street and Katrina Toomey uh, joins me. Good morning to you, Katrina. Good morning. Patricia. Now, I know our own uh, PJ Coogan from our sister station played a role in this, but it was Michael Mulcahy and John Minahan who discovered the location. Tell me all about it. Well, um, as you say, it was PJ and PJ said that they'd, you know, pull up the stops to help us and all the lads up at the at 96 uh, and they did. And um, PJ brought in Michael Mulcahy as an events manager and uh, Michael you know, just jumped in straight away. And then he brought in John Minahan. And the day that they were here, we went down to Little Island, you know, and had some meetings about what was going to happen, etc. And then they came up to measure the street because we had been given permission to close off the street and we were going to put tents up and things like that and pods. But um, the right next door to us is Lancaster Hall and that's owned by Frank Sheehan and uh, his family. And um, Frank and Michael and John were having a look at it. And then um, I rang Frank and um, spoke to him. And uh, Frank and Joey Sheehan then came on board with Michael Mulcahy and John Minahan and the whole lot of them. And uh, Lorraine O'Neill and Lowe, you know, they just kind of all pulled together. So the Gardaí and the Army, they're kind of all involved. So it's going to be... A winter wonderland, you know, for the day, it's going to be absolutely brilliant. So it's 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 an it's a car it's an underground car park, is it? It's, yeah, but it's a fabulous underground car park. No, it really is lovely because there are apartments up overhead, yeah, and uh, like consultant rooms and things like that. So it's it's, it's the layout is ideal. It's absolutely brilliant, 
And of course, we'll have Griffin's Garden Centre then that will come in and probably add a load of magic to it and make it look beautiful, Margaret and Miriam and all the guys outside. Like, they, they support us all the time. They bring in soup every week to us and their brown bread and, you know, like, so we kind of have a lot of people that are already supporting us and now they want to do more for us. Like it's Christmas. brilliant. It's brilliant. And, and I know uh, Michael Mulcahy as the events uh, manager. I've worked with Michael before with I the Cork Business him. Awards. Yeah. I mean, this guy, I mean, you talk about Frank doing his wedding planning. Uh, yeah. Michael Mulcahy is is just amazing how he can turn yeah. what would look like a normal venue into something, as you say, like a winter wonderland. And that's obviously the yeah. plan. And for me, the worry is gone now because, you know, I trust them completely and it's in their hands and I know it's going to be just really warm and cosy and beautiful and it'll be a lovely place for people to come and spend Christmas, not having to spend it alone. You know, like this year has been a rough year for so many people, for everybody really with the COVID-19, but for some people who just find it so difficult to cope and depend on us and depend on you know, they're like if they have mental health issues, they have services that they could go to, like clubs now and places like the Lantern Project and Shine and stuff like that. That that kind of all had to stop. So, like, we we want to show them that they're not forgotten about, they're cared about, and we want them to come and spend it with us because it's been a long, tough, hard, lonely year for quite a lot of people. You're so right. right. You're yeah. so right. How many how many dinners would you hope to serve? Well, at, at at the car park, I suppose we'll be roughly around 200 plus. Okay. But on the day, we'll have loads of families that we will be taking Christmas dinner to as well. Plus, we'll also have, we'll be giving people their Christmas dinner to make at home, those that can, can can make it at home. So we have, and we have hampers for everybody. Like, we'll, like we'll have thousands and thousands of hampers going out and we're gearing up for that. Plus, we look after, you know, a lot of other... Um, centres, hubs, places in Cork and we look after all of them and make sure that nobody goes without so they all have families on their list so we will help them to help their families so in other words it kind of keeps our list down a small but while we have other centres and hubs doing all this for us you know um, at the minute we have Cork City Missing Persons Search and Recovery Unit and we also have the Gardaí delivering hampers for us and then you know some of our volunteers so there's, it's a massive operation and they're all out like, and they're loading up, you know, 40, 50 hampers at a time. And we have a warehouse rented out up in Northside, um, Northside Business Park, we call it, um, uh, up there. And um, we have a, a team of lads that did St. Vincent's first during the last lockdown when, people, when every place was shut and people were kind of struggling, you know, they're, they're, they're out of work, they're money wasn't coming in, they were getting the COVID-19 payment, but that wasn't enough for what they were earning, you know, to keep paying their bills. So we had um, St. Vincent's Hurling Football Club gave us their premises, and we had a team of volunteers up there who happened to be mountain climbers, and they're all friends as well, but they're fish, they're strong, and they can go the distance, like they put in huge hours up there, you know, um, they even have their own Christmas tree up there because they're worried in case they won't be left home for Christmas Day. <laughs> <laughs> and come here, Katrina, when you say you'll deliver Christmas dinners on to families, are, are you yeah. talking about families? 
How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. For children? Yes, yes, absolutely. We've been doing that while, you know, and we have... Like on Christmas Day, Michael Turtle from Executive Cars, he kind of makes his cars available and we have taxi drivers that just ring up and say, I'll come and do two or three hours on Christmas morning delivering. So we kind of have them all lined up. We're always good to go. We have our backup plan the whole time. We have the O&E, which you know, the soldiers, the, the, the ex-servicemen, um, Hadji Mulvey, and, and then they're making a plan of available to us and the ex-servicemen are going to be available one or two days a week just to do deliveries with us and to help and to take stuff to people so we we do have um, a lot of support on that front people want to, to you know to do and to give you know and um, it's just extraordinary really what, what people do like yesterday we had a collection down in Kentuck and we were so busy here that instead of you know trying to get down there for 10 half 10 and we were there in the afternoon and we weren't going anywhere because we were so, so busy. And we rang Margaret O'Callaghan over in Kilbrin and Margaret said, we said, Margaret, how, how near are you? Oh, she said, I'm very near. And off she went. Into She's, great. She's great. She's so, great. You know, and you know what's, what's fantastic about your organisation, your charity, uh, Katrina? It's, it's Cork people helping Cork people. Isn't it? I mean, that's what it's all about, isn't it? And not just Cork, like we're getting we're getting letters uh, of goodwill and, and we're getting donations from Tipperary, from Monaghan, from all over the world. You know, one came in from London this morning and we get them from Vancouver in Canada. There's Joni and Ed uh, out, in, out in, um, in Vancouver and they support us a couple of times during the year. And, and do they have a core connection? Well, they do, I suppose, and it's a bit of, 
they're actually uh, their daughter Julie is married to my nephew Francis and oh. they live in New Zealand, right? <laughs> yeah. When when they came to visit Ireland, um, they came and volunteered in penny dinners and they just took us to their heart straight away. Oh, and we get lovely letters from the Vancouver area. The kindness the kindness yeah. of, of, of people is, is amazing. And how have donations been this year, Katrina? Oh, they've been very good. People are really very, very good to us, Patricia. I think everybody knows what we do. Like we have our house, but our people living in the house. We've our new warehouse coming on stream shortly. And, you know, uh, um, like we wanted a brother Kevin came down from Dublin and he said, I'm sending you down somebody. And he sent me down Brendan Fanning, who's the dentist that rolls out brother Kevin's dental care up in his centre, in the Capuchin Centre in Dublin. And he said, you have to put in a dentist. He said, oh, he didn't want one. When it was proposed to me first, he said, but it's the best thing I've ever done. So he said, I'm begging you, put in. You know, so I said, OK. I, you know, Brother Kevin is Brother Kevin. and mm-hmm. So I said, OK. I said, I go with that. So we went back to the commission and there was some a dentist. And I was in there and stuff. And But look, we have a dentist that uh, volunteers with us here, Brian. And Brian then linked up with um, Brendan Fanning. And they linked up with Niall Hartigan, and Noel Hartigan, and uh, who kind of fits dental areas. So it was on plan, but somebody rang there a couple of weeks ago, and he just said, look, I want to do something, but I want to give you a donation, but I want to do something with it. And he said, it'll be a fairly, you know, sizable donation, like, you know. And then he said, is there anything that you yourself would love? And I said, the dental room. And he gave us the money for it. Twenty-eight thousand euros. Just, just people yeah. are fantastic. People are really, uh, I mean, really fantastic. When he said he to make a donation, we didn't expect that. Like, I know, I know. I know. Well, in the course of our conversation, he told me he, he and we like it's going to double up as a doctor's room as well. And he told me that his two children, one was studying medicine and one was studying dentistry. And he so couldn't he, have known. You couldn't have known that. No, and he couldn't well, have known. Well, well, not because I don't know who he is. Yeah, yeah. And and Christmas Day, uh, Katrina, how important is it over all of the other days that where you serve dinners? It's the most important day of the year, not just for it being Christmas Day, but the spirit of Christmas that we all grew up with and we know about it's a time for, you know, family, it's a time for love and time for caring about each other and giving gifts and doing all the Christmassy things and letting all your... Thing, you know, anything else to one side, you know, it, it's traditionally a time when people are nice to each other. But we have people that kind of wouldn't have anybody to spend Christmas with. We yeah. have people who've lost people and have no one out to spend their lonely Christmas with. So this is why it was so important that nobody would be left on their own and feeling alone, hurt, lonely. You know, all those feelings when you have nobody to talk to because interaction with some other human being means the world to so many people. It cheers them up big time. They leave us with a smile on their face, you know, that they may not have come in with. But on Christmas Day, they appreciate all the effort that we put in and it's about just saying like, that this is it. We'll do it together. We'll make it together. You know, that song, just the way all friends Yeah, yeah. That's what we all are at the end of the day. We have to make it so together. Reaching out for each other. Okay, a couple of, of calls and texts. Anne says, Hi Patricia, I donated some big squash a few weeks back. I'm wondering if Penny Dinners would like more as they're beautiful for soup and they go a long way and they last for months. Uh, you they were, need they were, they were lovely. Do you want some yeah. more? Anne has more yeah. of them. Yeah, we'll take 
You'll take them, okay. And then collections are taking place again in the North Cork area for non-perishable food, cleaning products, toiletries at Reardon Supervalue in Formoy, Roaches Spa in Mitchestown, Downey's Spa Castletown Roach, Amber Shop in Ballyhooley and Donnerell Golf Club. It's John and Emer, and they've been doing it for many years for penny dinners if people want yes. to donate. Uh, it's terrific. You're, you're just, you're a wonderful organisation. And Katrina, how will your good self spend Christmas Day? Well, you know, we'll have, uh, you know, some of the grandkids will get home, so we'll have Christmas morning quite early, I'm sure. It'll, <laughs> we don't need any alarm clock on Christmas morning. <laughs> but then we, we do that, and then we come straight into penny dinners. And, like, I have to be home, then, like, you know, I get the phone calls about three, you better be home for half or no later for the dinner, you know, and, and whatever, because they're home, then we're cooking the dinner, and we go home, and we have the dinner. And just a case of... Like we're like free willy on the, the sofa afterwards, you know, that's when they're getting a big whale or something like that. <laughs> we're we're always it's a food a food coma and you're allowed to have a nap after it for sure listen it's a pleasure as always if we don't get to talk before Christmas Katrina have a have a happy and a safe one Patricia could I just say that the deep south over in Grand Parade they've given us the use of their big huge place over so we're bringing people in on the 20th of uh, December on the Sunday and we're going to come over here then for Christmas Day but we we'd be bringing them indoors to have them sit down for all their meals like for a couple of weeks just to give everybody a reprieve because it's so sad to see people sitting around the street or people just coming down and walking home knowing they're missing their friends the people that they meet a bit of banter a bit of chat in penny dinners and so we said we'd, we'd try and do something and the Deep South came on board and again I know what's going to happen what we're going to do is like when we having the renovations the last time restaurants and hotels came on board to cook a day's dinner for us because we're so busy here it's it's frightful we couldn't even it was gone 12 o'clock when we get home last night we were in Patrick Street of 5 to 12 and um, you know our hours are very very long so we're just hoping like that for about two to three weeks we'd be spared all, like on Christmas Day the Riverley Hotel will be taking care of the dinner for everybody because they've been doing that for years it's a great tradition but we're hoping for the other two to three weeks that people will just you know that the hotels and restaurants might just donate a day's dinner like a great, great. or a lasagna or something okay. and we, you know, and you can be you can be contacted at the Pen, at Cork Penny Dinners on Little Hanover uh, Street. Always a pleasure to talk to you, Katrina. Thank you for that. Yeah. And a happy Thanks. happy and a peaceful Christmas to you. Look after yourself. And to to all of you and to all everybody down your area. They're absolutely fantastic. You know they're really and Margaret O'Callan has stirred up a huge amount of emotion. She's great. She's great. God bless, Katrina. Take care. Bye bye. Bye bye. That is uh, the wonderful uh, Katrina Toomey of uh, Cork Penny Dinners. If you're ever looking for an example of a a living, walking saint, it is certainly that woman. She is just incredible. Uh, I don't know how, at times, I I never hear her down. She always keeps going. And even when things look like, I mean, I remember that time months ago saying to her, you know, what's Christmas going to be like for you? And she said, oh, I'm a bit worried about it. But, you know, we'll do something. We, you know, we'll still serve Christmas dinners if we have to do it in pods if we were to do it in tents she was going to come up with something and now as she said yeah, she's had her little miracle on uh, Hanover Street it's terrific and well done to the likes of Michael Mulcahy and John Meenan and the rest of the gang and Cork businesses have just been amazing to jump in because I think they see it as a charity it is our charity and it's one that we all hold so dear in our hearts and that's because of 
somebody like Katrina Toomey. 1850-333-103. John Paul Sadie taking your calls. Text or WhatsApp 0862-103-103. You're listening to Cork Today on Replay. Phone and text lines are currently closed. Cork Today on C103. Call Patricia with your comment. 1850-333-103. Now, the Donkey Sanctuary in Escarol, a Cork animal charity which cares for 1,200 donkeys, is in urgent need of funds due to the effect of the COVID-19 restrictions. And uh, joining me with more details is Laura Foster, who is the country manager with the uh, Donkey Sanctuary. Good morning to you, Laura. Good morning, Patricia. Thank you very much for having me on. Well, you're welcome. Like so many other charities, have you not been able to hold your normal fundraising events this year? That's exactly right, yes. Um, Like Catriona before, um, who you were speaking to before, you know, we have suffered definitely as a result of uh, COVID-19 this year and our ability to to fundraise as, as we have done in previous years, yes. And you, have you been completely close to the general public? We have since since March, since the uh, since the first lockdown. Sadly, we we did have to close our our open farm site, which I know many of you you're, you're very familiar with, and many of your listeners will be um, familiar with and have visited many times. So, we did for for the sake of public health and the, the safety and security of our staff and our donkeys, who obviously rely on our staff for their health and well being. We've had to keep that site uh, closed throughout the remainder of the year. Um, and yes, you know that's that's the visitor centre there, and and it's a great it's a great showcase for our charity in terms of um, explaining to the public and showcasing the work that we do. So it's a great shame that we've had to remain closed, but we are we are looking forward to welcoming welcoming everybody back as soon as we can. Yeah, and I think you know part of the the trip to the donkey sanctuary. I know certainly for for my family, and we would go uh, a few times a year. You never pass the visitor centre without popping in and buying a key no. ring or a mug or a coaster. You know what I mean? You'd always pick up something, yeah. knowing that that was going towards uh, the care of these beautiful animals. Do you know? Do you reckon how much are you down by financially, Laura? Have you put a figure on that? Well, we know that at the end of the last quarter, so we're obviously into our final quarter of the year now, we, we know that we were um, significantly down on, on uh, compared to last year. Now, obviously, no two years are, are the same. Um, so we, we were down um, by oh, certainly over 100,000 uh, euros at the end of the last quarter, um, which is why we've launched the appeal um, as we come towards the winter months, which is traditionally you know, uh, uh, the busiest time for us and can be the most sort of pressured time in terms of the demand for our services and and um, where we see quite a lot of deterioration in donkey welfare um, across Ireland. So we've launched the urgent appeal uh, to, to in recognition of the fact that this has been a very challenging year for us financially and we've got, you know, we've got to prioritise our funding now. Um, but also in recognition of the fact that we, we have a tough season ahead of us how much does roughly does it cost to care for each of your donkeys? Well, that really depends on on whether we're talking about um, sanctuary based care or our care out in the community. Um, so we know that the the charity overall um, it costs about four four million euros a year to run, and you know we are reliant on public donations. Um, for some of that, but we're heavily subsidised by our parent charity. 
So it's it's uh, it's becoming increasingly important for us now to sort of raise our profile across Ireland and um, to do as much fundraising as possible across across Ireland um, and to make people aware of all the the varied nature of the work that we do. Um, not just in terms of our sanctuary, because I think many people will be familiar with us as a as a physical place, but actually our our welfare teams do a huge amount of work out in the community, helping people to help their donkeys, um, preventing poor welfare, um, and you know doing that really important educational work, which means in the long term, we hope that you know we will see fewer donkeys uh, needing us in in cases of emergency. I mean, that in the ideal world, there wouldn't be a need for a sanctuary like yours. Exactly. Everybody would be exactly. looking after their donkeys, but unfortunately that that doesn't happen. I know um, a couple of weeks ago we were speaking about Dublin Zoo. They received financial support uh, from, the, from the government. Do you get any state funding, Laura? A very, very small amount. So as I say, we are almost entirely reliant on, on donations from Ireland, but also from, from the UK, um, and and other other areas in which we fundraise, so we we're certainly going to look at the potential for for uh, other other types of fundraising and and looking at sources governmental sources as part of that. Um, but we really are we are heavily reliant on on public donations. That that's true. Okay, so, so your message is any donation, uh, big or small, it doesn't matter to to help out. It, Exactly, exactly. It really does make a difference to us. And we have had a fantastic response to our urgent appeal. It's been, you know, incredibly moving for us and very, very motivating for our teams. You know, as you might imagine, our teams are incredibly passionate and very dedicated um, to caring for, for their don- for our donkeys. You know, we have over 1,800 donkeys in our care currently, um, Almost 1,200 of those are actually across our own farms and holding bases. Uh, we have over 600 donkeys out in guardian homes. Um, so it takes a lot of management, you know, to 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 ensure the health and well, welfare of all of those donkeys, as well as going out to all the donkeys in the community. And this year, we will have reached about 1,400 donkeys in the community as well. So for our teams, who are, you know, we, we've also been restricted uh, because of COVID. We've had to tailor our working arrangements to keep everybody safe uh, we've had to really work around these restrictions so for our teams to, to see the response from the public you know we're, we're so grateful so every euro really does help us um, and and has really really buoyed us up at what has been you know the the end of a very difficult year okay and I'm assuming your Christmas cards and calendars there are they still on sale they are indeed yeah. yes. If you go to if you go to our website or to any of our social media channels, um, you'll be able to uh, get information on on how to order one of those. Um, and yes, there's various other uh, pieces of information about the work that we're doing at the moment and how you can donate. We're we're running our adoptions campaign. We have been running that for a few weeks now as well. So, um, however you choose to support us, you know that that money goes straight into uh, managing the the health and welfare of our of our animals. Well, you do, you've been, you do, and continue to do amazing work. And and I'm assuming Laura worried about the year ahead that because of COVID and that and because of restrictions and because some people have found themselves not as well off as they had been on previous years that you could end up with even more donkeys needing care. Well, that's that's right, and I think we're very mindful of the fact that 
you know, when human welfare suffers, animal welfare tends to suffer. And quite often the owners that we're working with, um, you know, have, have found themselves falling on hard times. They've become overwhelmed with the responsibilities of looking after their animals. Uh, we recently publicized a, a case of a, a, a dairy farmer who'd, who'd had donkeys on his land for about 10 years. And, you know, like many, many members of the agricultural community, the farming community in Ireland, we're, we're seeing really tough times at the moment. And as you say, Patricia, next year, it's, it's, it's likely to get, to, to get tough with, with Brexit and the ongoing impact of COVID. Um, so there, there is definitely a relationship there between human welfare and animal welfare. And we see that as a big part of the work that we do is, is as I say, to, to help people, to help their animals. And just sometimes by alleviating that stress, giving people that support, that guidance, pointing them in the direction of good farriers, veterinary support, um, giving them some tips and some information about how how to how to prevent problems, especially in the winter time, can can be really really useful. And of course, we main we maintain contact with those owners well as done. well. And, as it, and it means that on. the animal doesn't end up in your care. Listen, uh, Laura, continue. Good luck to the great work that you do, and uh, thank you so much for joining us on the program this morning. Thanks to you. Good morning Thanks to you. Bye 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 bye. Laura Foster there of the Donkey Sanctuary in Liscarroll. Court today. Court today. With Patricia Messenger on C103. Virgin Media One will air a brand new compelling documentary tonight. It's called Ireland Under Lockdown COVID 19 Stories, and it'll be aired at 9 pm. It's presented by Virgin Media news reporter Zara King. The documentary will explore the impact of coronavirus on life in Ireland. And I'm delighted to say that Zara King has taken time out to chat to us. Good afternoon to you, Zara. Hello, Patricia. Good afternoon. How are you? Yeah, I'm very well and you're very welcome to the programme. I imagine we will need to have tissues at the ready for this one. You've spoken with people who've lost loved ones due to COVID-19. Yes, that's right. I would maybe recommend having some tissues on standby. I suppose, look, more than 2,000 families, Patricia, are facing into their first Christmas without their loved ones. Um, I suppose the reality of what has unfolded this year comes into sharp focus and it always does I suppose with these first milestones doesn't it and um, so in the latest documentary we are taking a moment to reflect and remember those who lived and were loved before Covid took them away so this documentary really is about celebrating their lives commemorating their loss and hearing from the families behind the figures that we were reporting every night and on the flip side of that then also hearing from the key decision makers the people who made decisions that ultimately changed all of our lives so it's a real mix of sort of family life and those key decision makers talking about the decisions they made. Yeah, I mean, losing a loved one, there's never a right time to lose a loved one. But COVID, because of the nature of this uh, virus, people weren't always able to be with their loved ones when they passed. Yeah, that's it. Like, and that's that's the common thread that we hear from all of the families that we speak to, Patricia. And actually, we have a sit-down interview tonight with an undertaker uh, based in Dublin, uh, Gus Nichols and he's really fascinating to speak to we don't often hear from undertakers yeah. actually and you know it, it was actually for me as a journalist the end of a conversation with him actually was really fascinating and like they were very much on the front line they're probably the forgotten front line workers in some ways because look while they deal with death and it's part of their day to day lives what they were dealing with in terms of the pandemic was a whole other scale and you know he talks about the fact that in their work they always try to say yes to families to try and make things as comfortable as they can for them in, these, in this sort of situation whereas when the pandemic hit all of a sudden they had to start saying no to families and they had to start telling them look sorry we can't do this we can't do that 
And, you know, he's paid tribute to families and he says they've been phenomenal and, and they really understood it and took it to heart. But, my God, it was so tough for some of these families. I mean, we heard anecdotes of people, you know, who weren't able to comfort or hug one another. Poor Rick Byrne is a gentleman in the documentary. You might remember the photograph of him peering in the window saying goodbye to his brother in a oh, hospital. Standing yeah, up on the iconic. bench. Yeah, yeah, that was it. It was an iconic photo from, from the pandemic. And I really wanted to talk to Podrick about that. So he was kind enough to sit down with us and chat to us for over an hour about it. And actually, his niece, Rachel, who was his brother, Francis's daughter, the gentleman who died, she talked to us as well about the whole experience. Her and her mom were inside the window with her dad and Vodrick was outside. And just to hear the kind of, I suppose, the, the difficult time they had in terms of trying to give him a send-off and trying to say goodbye. And Vodrick talks about even going out to the grave for the burial and like not being able to put his arms around his niece and his sister-in-law to comfort them. And actually, at the end, sort of this, you know, goodbye and everyone just kind of went home and went their separate ways and it's so part of our Irish culture isn't it to have a real you know big wake and for us to break bread together after a funeral it's such a big part of who we are as people so it was very difficult for these families Yeah and undertakers talking of like sealed coffins so loved ones didn't even get to like I heard one woman say um, I don't even know what my husband was buried in Yeah I know, isn't it shocking? It's really, really shocking. And these are the kind of smaller anecdotes, I guess, that like we mightn't necessarily have heard on the evening news. But they were important stories to tell. It's a big part of our history throughout this year. So we did try to tell those stories in the documentary tonight and we tried to give, I suppose, a bit of a tribute as well to those people, Patricia, because I was saying to somebody recently, you know, more than 2,000 people died, but it wasn't just about them dying. These people lived really valuable lives and made huge contributions to the world. And like, I want to know about them. I want to hear about them. We want to sort of remember them. So with the families we have in the documentary, hopefully we will pay tribute well done. well done well, well done they, yeah. they, they they loved and were loved uh, yeah. and you also discuss how the lockdown has affected people's mental health yes so actually we have a lovely family from Cork in the documentary tonight Yvonne Murray a mum of two gorgeous little girls she spoke about her mental health in the context of um, I suppose the isolation she felt in lockdown so she was diagnosed uh, with postnatal depression in January so obviously before the pandemic reached Ireland but at that time she was diagnosed and she was on a treatment plan and she was doing really really well through the month of January and February and then when lockdown hit in March and April and she became disconnected from her friends and family she found that really tough and you know that's you know, something that I think a lot of people can really relate to, not just in terms of um, experiencing difficulties with their mental health, but also that loneliness and the isolation. I think a lot of us have really felt lonely over the last couple of months. So we wanted to talk about that as a huge, huge part of all of this. Um, And also another lady in her 70s who spoke to us about the fact that she was a member of an active retired group and really busy, always had stuff on, was kind of you know, her diary would be full week after week with different activities and all of a sudden she couldn't go to any of these things. She said to me, Zara, you know, I never thought I was old. I never knew I was old until the government <laughs> told me I was. Do you know yeah. what I mean? And, yeah. and she's a real character. Like, And we actually, we, we have shots of her sort of doing a workout class at home online with her laptop with all her friends and stuff. She's a brilliant, brilliant character. But, you know, really interesting to hear her perspective. She's like, it never occurred to me that I was older until until I was told I was vulnerable, which was quite a shock to her. Yeah, and that was the gen, the age group that were told in the first lockdown that they had to cocoon. And so many yeah. of them took umbrage to that. Oh, completely. I mean, my own grandfather, who lives down in Clannock Hills, he's 87, and he just didn't understand the cocooning concept at all. He just thought it was complete madness. He was like, oh, no, no, I'm fine. I don't need to cocoon. You know, like, he's, he's a really vibrant sort of outgoing man. It wouldn't even occur to him that he would be having to mind himself in any particular special way. I mean, and there's a lot of people over 70 
who would feel the exact same way about it. He finds it really difficult to be told you have to stay home. Yeah, I heard of a 90-year-old gentleman, actually in West Cork as well, when he was told by his family they were trying to explain cocooning and he said, no, no, I've, I've looked into it. Cocooning is for older people. It's not for me. Yeah. And, 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 he, and he 90. And you interviewed, yeah. you spoke, as you say, with some of the key decision makers, including Simon Harris. I'm interested in this. He spoke about his thoughts the night before the announcement of the first lockdown. Yes, so a lot of people might know this. I didn't know this until I made the documentary, but there's a meeting room on the sixth floor in the Department of Health. It's called Room 631. And it's actually a very crucial part of our pandemic story in a sense that a lot of the big decisions um, that changed our lives, those meetings happened within Room 631. Those conversations were happening there. And actually that was the one, that room was coming up all the time in all the interviews I was doing with a lot of the decision makers. And Simon Harris talked about being in that room the night before lockdown was announced. So Neffet had met until midnight and then after the Neffet meeting, Dr Tony Eden was to meet then with Simon Harris and Simon Coveney into the early hours of the morning. They met until three o'clock in the morning. And Simon Harris talked about sort of looking out the window that night. The Department of Health is in Dublin City Centre has an amazing view of the city. But looking out that window at all the lights in the distance and sort of seeing all of the houses and thinking to himself, how am I going to tell people tomorrow morning that they cannot go to school, they can't go back to work, that they've got to close their businesses. He was just like, oh my God, like it was such a a gigantic task to have to relay this to the public that he remembers very vividly that whole experience. He talked about that in the documentary this evening. And you also interviewed Tony Houlihan. I mean, he just became a household name. Yeah, so Dr Tony Hulan, obviously the Chief Medical Officer tasked with leading the country through this global pandemic, um, obviously stepping out for a number of months then through the year for personal reasons, Dr Ronan Glynn coming in and then Dr Hulan having to come back as we began the second wave. So yeah, again, to hear his insights were fascinating because even as a reporter for me, I was in the Department of Health every day, probably since the 29th of February when the first case was confirmed. And so I often wondered, what were they thinking and feeling at that time? I really wanted to ask, but it wasn't appropriate in that moment to ask. I knew that we would have to wait till a later stage to have these conversations. And like I said earlier, I do think it's important that we have these conversations. Now, this is the history of our time, of the year that we've had. And to hear his insights, like he talks about um, the night that Leo Radker addressed the nation, it was a Friday night when the lockdown was confirmed. And, you know, he talks about walking back from government buildings across through Dublin City over to the Department of Health and how quiet, how eerily quiet it was. There was, no cars, there was no people, it was just a stillness had kind of fallen over the entire country and he, he talked about how eerie that was but yet it was a sign that, you know, people were adhering to the guidelines and they were doing the right thing. Yeah, and as you've you've mentioned there, you've attended some, if not all, of those Neffet press uh, briefings, uh, Zara. Were some of them quite difficult, particularly back in the days when the numbers were, were scarily high and didn't seem to be falling at all? Yeah, honestly, they were. They really were. And, you know, as journalists and as reporters, you know yourself, you know, you, you're a professional and you get on with your job. But the reality was, Patricia, like these are people in our own country that were dying every day. And I did find that really shocking. I particularly remember the night when the highest number of deaths were reported in one day. It was 77 people in one day. And I was handed a piece of paper while we were live on air. So I hadn't had a chance to read it before I told the public what was on it. And I was shocked. I remember being really shocked and quite upset, actually, and thinking, oh, my God, like, you just, you never get to a stage where that level of death becomes normal. And I don't think we should, because even now, like right now on Saturday, for example, 13 deaths were reported on Saturday. That's yeah. the 13 families who are dealing with it. Who won't and, have their know, loved one this Christmas. Totally. 
completely. And also, what really struck me, and again, you'll know this yourself from your own programme, like if three or four people died in one incident in any other year, we would lead with that story for weeks on end. It would be the news cycle would be focused on that story for like a prolonged period of time. And all of a sudden then we were dealing with high levels of death on a daily basis to the point where people were nearly kind of accepting it as normal. And listen, that's a coping mechanism and we have to, we can't, you know, we have to try and cope to it free. But for those families, I mean, the reality of it was, was dark. Yeah, And is this a one-off do- documentary? Yeah, so the documentary tonight is an hour-long documentary. It's a one-off piece for television. But because we had so much footage, we had hours and hours of footage, we made the decision literally last week to produce a six-part podcast series um, to run off the back of the documentary. So that's going to be released tonight on Apple and Spotify podcasts. The podcast is going to be called Room 631, Ireland's COVID Crisis. And they're going to contain the unheard tapes from the documentary because we did have so much that you couldn't fit into one hour. So uh, the episodes will include uh, one full um, 45 minute long episode that's a full interview with Dr. Tony Houlihan where you get to hear the full the full interview with him and the others then go through some of the different family lives and and uh, Paul Reed is an episode there with Paul Reed from the HSC who has some really interesting anecdotes as well there's a full episode with Simon Harris so we wanted people because I do think again I've said it so many times but I do think that this is such an historic time in our lives that to have these tapes and to have the audio of these conversations I think is something that will be important in years to come. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. So it is tonight, as I say, have the tissues ready tonight at, <laughs> um, at nine o'clock. You mentioned your, your granddad in yeah. uh, Clonakilty and that, of course, has prompted straight away somebody saying, hi, Jim says, listening there to Zara. Is Zara a Cork woman? By the way, I'm looking forward yeah. to her programme tonight. Uh, you, you're Waterford, but you have Cork heritage. Is that? Well, I was actually born in Cork. Were you? My, yeah, I was born in Cork. I was born in Cork and um, my mom is Cork and my dad's Waterford. My parents live in Waterford, but all my Cork family are still very much rooted in Cork. I have an aunt in Ballincollig and the rest of them are in West Cork. So I was born in Cork and so I say I'm from both places really. But yeah, so <laughs> granddad Joe Hilliard is down in Clannacilty and my grandparents um, had a house in Court Mac when we were growing up, so we used to spend in Court McSherry. So we spent all our summers in Court McSherry, and I was down there actually just this summer gone. And we've been spending Christmas in Court Mac the last couple of years. So myself and my parents will hopefully spend Christmas in Court McSherry now with Granddad Joe this year. Brilliant. Um, all social distancing and trying to keep it safe in the house. We're still figuring out the logistics. And actually, I think it's important to say that, Patricia, that they're the conversations every family should be having right now coming up to Christmas, just trying to figure out amongst yourselves how you're going to manage it. Like, we're having conversations like, who's going to use what bathroom? Like, you know, what way yeah. we're going to manage it? And like, they're, you know, they're kind of mad conversations to be having, but they're the be- it's the best thing to do in terms of keeping ourselves safe because it's so lovely to see today the vaccine being uh, administered in, in the North today. And there's so many positive things coming ahead, but we still have a little bit to go in terms of getting through Christmas. So I'd really hope that um, none of us will let our guard down, that we'll get through this safely this Christmas. Yeah, and then all have a, a, a safe and a peaceful uh, Christmas, but you, nobody wants to bring COVID with them for Christmas. You'd never live with yourself if you passed it on to a loved one over Christmas. Absolutely, absolutely. OK, listen, we're looking forward to the programme. It is tonight, Virgin Media 1 at, at 9 o'clock. Zara, thank you for that. Enjoyed our chat and stay safe. Yeah, me too. Thanks Thank a million. Take care. Bye-bye. 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 That is Zara King from Virgin Media tonight at nine o'clock. OK, I do have a little clip. OK, so I have a little clip. This is one of the gentlemen that spoke to Zara. And this is Donny talking about his wife who had a COVID-19. 
The C103 Cork Diary. With Cork County Council. Celebrate a real Cork Christmas. Find out more at corkcoco.ie. Well, I'm at just on Lions Club. They are appealing for donations through their GoFundMe page. It's the Christmas food appeal. You can drop a donation in their collection bucket in Mitchellstown Credit Union. All monies raised will be distributed to food vouchers for families in need in the Mitchellstown uh, area. And Kiss Game GAA, they are holding a raffle where you can win a new Volkswagen Golf by supporting the Kiss Game GAA fundraising draw. Tickets can be bought through their website, which is kissgamegaadraw.ie. And apologies, I was pressing the wrong button there a couple of minutes ago. This is uh, part of Zara King's documentary, which goes out tonight, Ireland, under lockdown COVID-19 stories. And this is Donal talking about his wife who had COVID-19. So every night, during her comma, I mostly played love songs to her. Mm. And would that be over the phone? You'd play oh, yeah. love songs to her? Yeah, yeah. If I pick out the songs that meant so much to her. I might bring home a bad karaoke session I did in Paris where I sang James Taylor, You've Got a Friend. And I play James Taylor. So she died on the Wednesday. On the Monday, I said to Susan, in my thoughts, if it's too much struggle, go. And then on Tuesday, I changed my mind and said, no, don't. But on the Wednesday, she went. I tell you, have the tissues ready if you're watching that programme uh, tonight. Once again, our thanks to uh, Zara King from Virgin Media Run. And she's right there. Stories that so need to be uh, told. And then talking about the other programme that people are talking about was the documentary, the second part of the documentary on the, the Great Hunger, the Famine programme that was on RTE the last two Mondays. Afternoon, Patricia. Read the documentary on the Great Hunger last night. I too found it very distressing. My 13-year-old son also watched it with me. But how do I verbalise to you his reaction? He clearly saw that England ignore Ireland, Ireland's plight this I don't think will do anything to endear him to anything English I think it will reinforce the old Irish attitude in people towards the English that has never been forgotten by some. Now we can see why some people have that hatred within them and where it actually came from. I know it is such a touchy subject and it is so debatable. The documentary though I fear is reigniting it afresh but it is a story and it is a truth that must be told says a a listener and someone else says, let me look to some texts in on this uh, Hi Patricia on the Irish Famine programme I'm sure anyone that hasn't read the history of the Irish Famine would have been saddened, depressed and shocked to have watched this programme. However, this is the reality of famine and I'm convinced to this day it's embedded in the minds of us Irish, the catastrophe that took place in that period of time. They they should never stop teaching history in schools to children as these events need to be remembered and those poor people should never be forgotten. At the end of the day, they were our ancestors, says Tim in y'all. And you're right. And I knew the history of the famine as well, Tim. I would have studied it in school. I loved history and I've read history books over the over the years. But I still, even having all the knowledge, was still saddened, depressed and shocked uh, watching the programme. I just don't know what it was. I think it was just seeing it in the cold face and the images that they portrayed. It just it really, really got uh, to me. And says, Patricia, I agree with you that the programme of the famine was difficult to watch last night. It showed in graphic detail what people did to survive and the trauma suffered through the generations after the famine, says Anne. And Meg says, the American Indian tribe that featured in the first episode who helped us 
the Irish during the famine. We helped them recently. We did. We did. They hit on hard times there and they couldn't work out why suddenly they were getting uh, so much response from Irish people until they discovered what had happened all those uh, years ago. Okay, that's just some of your thoughts coming in on that programme last night. Then on other issues. Morning, Patricia. I'm wondering, is it okay to send Chivers Jelly to Australia? And John Paul looked it up because the Australians are very, very strict on what you can send and not send. And I can't get a definitive answer on jellies. I know you can send any kind of fruit or fruit preserves or jams or chutneys or anything like that. I don't know about jelly. My instinct would say no because there's gelatine in it. And for that reason, anything that's got any kind of an animal product they normally stop. But I, I don't know. My simple answer is I don't know. So we'll call it out because there's lots of people have loved ones in Australia. There isn't a blanket ban on any food because I know I regularly sent uh, Tato some Barry's tea and they wing their way to Australia. No trouble at all. But I don't know about Chivers Jelly. I, I, can't, I know now that I think about it, wasn't it earlier in the summer or maybe it was, before, it was even before um, the summer because during the summer you couldn't send parcels to America. I remember somebody sent a parcel to America. Was it jelly sweets were taken out and she was unaware that they couldn't be sent? The package was opened, the jellies were removed and then the rest of the package was uh, sent on. And if that, I'm sure that was Australia, if that's true, then I'm sure jelly, the actual chivers jelly. And I know that you want to send it for Christmas so that whoever it is you're sending it to can make the old cherry trifle it's probably what you want to send it for anyway has anybody ever sent jelly to Australia and will it make it through I just don't want you to waste your time or your money in, the, in posting it out 1850 333 103 and then a listener sent in a text saying thank you so much for your help with our collection day it was a major success well over 150 boxes loose items and 1,012 or 1,200 euro uh, collected and still going. So I said to John Paul, will you ring whoever sent in that text and find out? Because we, we tried to help out so many collections, I didn't know which collection it was. And it was actually Kevin from Bantir Mockera who joined me on the programme. Thank you, Kevin, for giving us the update. They are putting together the care packages for nursing homes in the North Cork area. Do you remember they were doing that? It was in the Bantir. It was initially going to be in the Bantir area, but then they got such a response, they spread it out a bit. So well done to anyone who donated there. They have over 150 boxes with loose items and €1,200 Euro in cash. That is terrific. Well done. People, again, are so generous. And then Breather was on to say, thank you, Patricia, for sending me out the books. I'm donating money to a blind charity. It, I felt so great and so special. Thank you so much. Now, it was Sadie took that call and I don't know what books it was. So the only books I can think of was the Sam and Sue books that we, we gave away. And we actually have another three sets of the Sam and Sue books to give away. Let me check with John Paul. Do you want to do this over the phone, John Paul, or is it by text? By text. Okay, we'll do it by text. So you can text or WhatsApp if you would like a copy. Let me, just one sec. Stay there and let me reach over here and get the Sam and Sue books now that I mentioned. These are the wonderful books that are printed locally here in Mallow by the Health and Safety Publications. They're fantastic books. It's Sam and Sue, called 112, Sam and Sue, learn about flu and other germs. And then the first book that they kicked it off with last year was the Sam and Sue, learn about cyber safety. And these, they are just gloriously illustrated and I love the feel of these books they are just gorgeous so if you and again like when Breather won them and we had we had other winners please only enter if you have young children they're kind of I would say under 10 year olds if you have young children that you either in the household or young children that you give these books to because I really want them to go to people uh, who the, the children will get 
get the message because there's come great messages in these books uh, as well and the people will dearly love them. So please only enter uh, if you have uh, ch- young children. 1850-333-103. Okay, I'm going to uh, take a quick commercial break and then we're back chatting with Joe Heffernan. You're listening to Cork Today on Replay. Phone and text lines are currently closed. Court today on C103. Text or WhatsApp Patricia with your comment. 086-2103-103. And Joe Heffernan runs a counselling practice in Bohobui. Joining me this afternoon. Good afternoon to you, Joe. Good afternoon, Patricia. And today we want to talk about the adult children of uh, alcoholics. Yeah. Why do you feel it's important that this is a topic that we should discuss? Well, no. A person uh, was talking to me recently a guy who lives uh, his own life, uh, is married, has children, um, but grew up in an alcoholic home where the dad had uh, a big uh, problem with alcohol. And the subject came up about visiting for Christmas. Um, Because even with the COVID uh, regulations now, it's quite within, it's, it's in order um, for them to visit their um, now elderly parents at Christmas. So, um, you know, the person just um, was chatting with me and said, like, that it was a worry um, uh, in in this particular case. The father would have been in recovery but slipped out of recovery and was in recovery and slipped out of recovery. And it's kind of... Um, uh, a case of um, how will it be? And uh, we were talking about the uh, the person mentioned actually ACOA, which is um, uh, a fellowship of adult children of alcoholics, and like what effect it has had on different members of the family. And um, I was saying like about the four now typical stereotypes nobody is going to be 100 percent that's me but um there would be usually uh one of the four would uh would uh would make uh, would describe a person maybe um uh, better than the other three if you get my drift yeah 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 and uh, the is it the relationship between the adult children and their parents? Is that? It's the way that I suppose um, uh, the way that a person can be affected, or to use a kind of a rather crude term, how a person would turn out as a result of growing up in a family where there was um, active alcoholism. Um, you know, uh, one person might be very, very responsible. That would be someone that kind of um, uh, took responsibility for trying to make things go right when they were going wrong. Another person could, for example, um, be very angry, very hostile, um, uh, you know, uh, get into trouble um, and, and all of that. Another person might retire into... Um, him or herself and, um, you know, kind of cut themselves off from the uh, the uh, the unpleasant parts of life, kind of, uh, uh, you know, uh, as a, 
as um, as a way of dealing with the problem. And another person might be, you know, um, uh, a joker, um, you know, the kind of black humor that one can have and um, uh, can, uh, you know, that when you want to say or um, um, approach the subject or a subject in a, in a serious way, we'll always have a one-liner or a quip and um, kind of cope with everything by... Um, you know, having a laugh and making the other person have a laugh and, um, you know, uh, kind of adorn mention the war. You, you, you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And then how does the, those, how do those stereotypes affect those people in their lives? Well, fair enough. We'll, we'll go through the four, like that I just mentioned, the, the very responsible person, um, the little man of the family, the uh, the little mother of the family who's looking after siblings and trying to make everything right um and always does what's right and um um wouldn't have much time now for the um the the family clown person that i just described and um that's what is visible to the family and to um uh, those who would know the person but what what what's hidden what's what's underneath there is that the person feels hurt and confused and has a lot of fear and um feels that they can never do enough to make things right um so that's like that's what's inside there um uh, and of course, the family would be delighted with this person. Um, this is someone to be very proud of, um, uh, because always does things right. And then we've two kind of um, areas. Then that, in a very very brief way, we could look at, like, supposing that that person never discusses, never deals with the situation as they found it, can become, you know. Um, obviously a workaholic, um, uh, doing everything right, very controlling, um, uh, and absolutely can't fail. That would be uh, very bad. Then, but supposing the person um, deals with the with the problem situation and um, uh, you know talks it over, um, uh, uh, expresses their fears, etc., can be an extremely competent and very organized person. Um, you know, would become a very good manager and can be extremely successful. So that would be the two possible outcomes for the, uh, as we say, the family hero, the super the kid. The super kid. And then the, this problem kid or the scapegoat. Right. The problem kid then would be... Um, very hostile, um, uh, getting into trouble. What has he done now or what has she done now? Um, but what you don't see inside is that the person feels quite hurt and feels abandoned and is angry and um, uh, has very low self-esteem. And um, like, wh- how does the family see this person? This is the one who takes the heat, like when anything goes wrong. What has he done this time? Um, uh, you know, uh, whenever whenever something would go wrong, it would be uh, like, where is he? 
or where is she? It's got what? to be him causing the trouble. Yeah. And then if he doesn't face up to that, there is the danger that he could go on to become addicted to alcohol. Absolutely. Wow. Absolutely. I mean, we know so many um, families where one would say, wouldn't you think now that he had seen enough of that all carry on with alcohol and all, and here he is or she is doing the very same thing again. Um, and, you know, um, might be, as they say, known to the Gardaí, um you know, always in trouble. Yeah. No. And then the last child. Well, just to finish there about the um, the problem kid. Um, uh, we, we, if if he enters into recovery, um, would be very courageous, very good under pressure, and and in fact could be of great help to others. Um, so there, there's always. Away. Yeah, there's always, always a good outcome. When somebody lo- looks for the help. And yeah. then the last child. The last, the last child, child grows up, what, what happens to him? Yeah. Well, now, the last child feels kind of unimportant. Um, you know, sit in the corner, um, keep the head down, and uh, uh, don't rock the boat. Um, now, uh, the family would see that person as, or grand we needn't worry about him or we needn't worry about her. And if that person doesn't ever talk about how it was, uh, can be very indecisive, um, you know, can can finish up quite alone um, and would find it extremely difficult, to, difficult sorry, to be assertive, you know, would find it nearly impossible to say no. But if the person gets into recovery and... Um, uh, talks about how things were, can be quite independent, could be a very talented and creative person, and can be very resourceful. So again, there's a poor outcome and a good outcome. And, and then, then the final one is the, the, the fam- final... Yeah, the family clown. The family clown. Yeah. Yeah. Um, actually, behind all the joking and all the one-liners and all of that would actually have quite low self-esteem would feel uh, a lot of fear um, and would feel quite inadequate. Um, what the family, of course, would see is, um, odd should his gas out, um, always has the bit of crack. and um, Great to of, be around. He's, great yeah. to be around. And um, uh, if the person doesn't deal with the issue um, of growing up in an alcoholic home... Um, you know, can be always uh, being the clown, um, uh, can't really handle stress, just makes a joke and uh, tries to carry on and um, is always highly, highly anxious behind the outer um, uh, manifestation. Okay, like, um, but, but with help and if he faces up to it, there is a positive outcome. Absolutely, and can be a very charming person, can be great with people, as we'll call, uh, say, um, a people person, great sense of humour, um, can be independent and, um, you know, can be quite good to be around, but not in a in a kind of a... Uh, a way of denial of making jokes about serious things. Okay, all right. And but the message we all start to get across to people: there is help available. Listen, Joe, have a great week, and we'll talk again next week. Thanks for joining us. Thank uh, you, good morning to you. That is uh, Joe Heffernan. Uh, his number is oh two nine seven six six one seven. That's where I leave you for uh, today. My thanks to Sadie and to John Paul. 
for taking your calls. We're back with you tomorrow morning at 10 and I'm Patricia Messenger. A very good afternoon. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.